the conservation outlook and scenario for hawksbills in the eastern Pacific is a completely different one than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, there was no hope. People were saying they're extirpated. And now there are projects established all over the eastern Pacific. And it's a really a positive conservation story with optimism looking towards the future. Welcome to the second episode of the Save the Wild podcast. I'm your host, Brad Nahill, president of the conservation nonprofit Sea Turtles. Today, we're diving into what I think is one of the most interesting and inspiring efforts to save sea turtles, the story of the Eastern Pacific Hawksbill Turtle. That voice you just heard was Alex Gauss, one of the key people involved in that work. But before we get to that story, first I'm going to talk about the illegal trade of sea turtle shells, and then we will have a short interview with Katie Frohart of Wild Earth Allies, a partner of our podcast sponsor, Nature's Path Organic Foods. After that, we will speak to several sea turtle experts, including Alex, about efforts to bring back the hawksbill turtle along the Pacific coast of the Americas. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. That makes a big difference in our ability to reach more people. This episode's commentary will be about the international sea turtle trade. Today, when people talk about plastic and sea turtles, the discussion focuses mostly on how plastic and snarls turtles and how they eat it when they confuse it for jellyfish. But back before plastic was invented, the shell of the hawksbill sea turtle filled that role. The scoots of a hawksbill can be fashioned into almost any shape, and that property added to the gorgeous color combination of orange, gold, and brown that has become so familiar that made these products popular for thousands of years before plastic became an alternative. You may know these products by the name tortoiseshell, though that is a misnomer since they come from a sea turtle and not tortoises. The illegal international trade in these products was first restricted by a global treaty in the 1970s and finally ended for good in 1994 when Japan stopped its importation of these products. But the illegal trade continues in many countries around the world, and Japan still has illegal domestic trade using a stockpile built up over decades, though some experts believe illegal imports into the country continue. My organization, Sea Turtles, runs an international campaign of more than 150 tourism companies and conservation organizations working to end demand for illegal tortoiseshell, called Too Rare to Wear. We recently published the first global report on this trade in decades that found that this trade continues in a significant way in at least 10 countries around the world, and an additional 30 countries have a smaller trade. Through working with partners around the world to study this trade, we identified more than 45,000 pieces for sale, both in person and online. This is for a turtle who the best estimates guess that there are maybe between 15 and 25,000 adult females alive on the entire planet. These products are often sold to tourists who do not realize that they come from a critically endangered species or that it is illegal to bring them home with you. So when you start traveling again, educate yourself on how to recognize and avoid tortoiseshell at truerare2wear.org. There you can read this global report, check out our guides on how to recognize and avoid these products, and sign our pledge to avoid tortoiseshell. As part of our sponsorship with Nature's Path EnviroKids, we are speaking with other partners of this great organic food company. This episode, we speak with Katie Ferhart, Executive Director of Wild Earth Allies. 
Katie has had a long career in wildlife conservation, including working with mountain gorillas in Rwanda. And we wanted to learn more about the work that she does now with Wild Earth Allies. Hello, Katie. How are you doing today? I am great, and it's wonderful to be with you, Brad. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about Wild Earth Allies and the work your organization does around the world to protect wildlife? That just happens to be one of my favorite topics, Brad, so I'd be delighted to do that. Um, maybe I start with our mission, which is a fairly straightforward one, and it really is all about protecting vital areas of our natural world for the benefit of wildlife habitat and people, and doing this by inspiring a lot of collaborative action. So this collaboration part is, is really important to us. That's sort of core DNA for Wild Earth Allies. And we believe this is really key as is focusing locally and working with those living closest to these natural resources that we're all trying to protect. Yeah, we agree. We really think that is the most important way to be able to protect wildlife. If the local communities are not on board and participating in it, it makes it harder for everybody. And particularly right now, you know, these threats that we're all facing, including the pan pandemic that we're all living through, you know, which just serves to underscore how linked everything is. So all of these threats from habitat loss to illegal wildlife trade to climate change, I think they all will take massive collaboration and action in order to reverse this. But I am also a true optimist and I firmly believe that we can do this together. Your organization partners with Nature's Path and Kids to support elephant conservation in Cambodia. Can you talk about that work and how their support helps Wild Earth Allies protect elephants? We, I have to say, we are such proud partners of Nature's Path and Kids. Um, what a dedicated team it is. And we have collaborated for many years now. And as you mentioned, their support of our work, particularly to protect Asian elephants in Cambodia, has been critical and we're so pleased to be on one of their cereal boxes. So over the years, that's, their support has taken different shapes with our field work. We work across several large landscapes that are really important for Asian elephants in, in the country. One is called Prelang Forest, and the other is Cardamom Mountains. And uh, the support from Nature's Path has allowed us to do really key things, such as purchasing and implementing field cameras, also called camera traps. And these have been really essential tools for us to better understand Asian elephant movements and areas they are using and potential threats that they face. But they've also helped us really understand much of the other wildlife that are in these forests. Um, I was looking up the metrics on this, and just in Prelong, which is pretty stunning, we've captured 80 different wildlife species on these cameras. So we have images of these wildlife, and with this information, we are far better able to direct ranger patrols and other conservation actions to increase protection. So Nature's Path Enviro Kids, we've worked hand-in-hand -hand with them on this. Wild Earth Allies also supports work outside of the forest. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That is right, and it's a key part of our work. And another area where Nature's Path and Kids support has been so critical. So we work in the forest-adjacent communities where environmental education resources are often quite scarce. 
An example of this is the village of Siembok, which is adjacent to Prelong Forest. And this is home to indigenous Khoi people. And it has been wonderful to use some of the support from Nature's Path to bring some of these wildlife images that I was speaking about from the field cameras right out of the forest and into these communities and to have really vibrant environmental education programs and festivals with these children who are the next generation, right? The next generation of conservation stewards. And this also sparked an idea for us to shoot our first film, which we did. It's a um, four minute film featuring our work in Cambodia and it's called Uncle Elephant, which is how our Cambodia director, Toy Sore Vatana, who's featured on that Nature's Path Enviro Kids cereal box, it's, um, it's his story and he is our Cambodia director but his dream since the time he was a little boy was to work in the forest and protect elephants. So this is something that we um, filmed and that everyone can enjoy on uncleelephant.org. That's really wonderful to hear. Our organizations, mine, Sea Turtles, and yours, Wild Earth Allies, we have a few things in common, including a board member, Jose Orteaga, who uh, we'll actually be speaking with later on in this podcast. Uh, and we both also support the same organization that works with sea turtles in El Salvador with Mike Lyles of Procosta, who we're also going to speak with later, who work to help protect the uh, Eastern Pacific Hawksbill. What made you guys want to support the work of Procosta and how have you partnered with them? Oh boy, this is another one of my favorite topics, Brad. So what a remarkable journey it's been really for close to two decades now, collaborating with the talented and once again, really community focused turtle conservation practitioners that you just mentioned. So indeed, we are so proud to share Jose Orteaga as a board member and to benefit from his talent. Um, our work with Jose goes back a number of years when he was focused on the Pacific coast of Nicaragua. But along the way, Jose introduced us to many, many talented practitioners working across the Eastern Pacific, as you framed. And along the way, our focus shifted to El Salvador and the work of the remarkable Procosta team and their work of course, focused on critically endangered hawksbill turtles and the community engagement that is so key to their recovery. I always find it fascinating as I look back, and this is back to 2008, I believe, Brad, that the rediscovery essentially of nesting hawksbill in El Salvador happened. And I remember these sort of waves of optimism seemingly overnight within the turtle conservation community, recognizing that essentially that known nesting population had doubled and really placed El Salvador on the global map as critical for recovery. So it is such a privilege for us now to support Procosta and their efforts and over the years, as we've been tallying the results of their efforts, in addition to substantial community engagement and work with artisanal fisher communities and so much more, they've managed to tag close to 300 nesting female turtles, protected over 2,000 nests, and released close to 200,000 hatchlings. 
So these are the sort of stunning metrics that I think signal that um, this partnership is is certainly one to watch and playing a key role in recovery of a very important marine turtle. It's great that both of our organizations are able to help these folks succeed on the ground. How can people learn more about Wild Earth Allies and the work that you guys do? We would love to have more people involved with us. And our website is wildearthallies.org. I mentioned the film uncleelephant.org is where you can find that, but that links right back to us. And then, of course, across social channels, we are active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And again, it's at, at Wild Earth Allies. And it would be great to have people helping spread the word and engaging with us in any way that makes sense for their lives. Well, thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. Our feature story for this episode is about the hawksbill sea turtles of the eastern tropical Pacific. Hawksbill turtles are one of two sea turtle species that are listed as critically endangered, meaning a drop of at least 80% over three generations, though for the hawksbill the decline was more rapid than that. Around the world, these turtles are generally found in and around coral reefs where they feed mostly on sea sponges. As I mentioned in the commentary, the tortoiseshell trade is the biggest reason they are endangered right now, and many organizations are working to bring them back. As recently as 15 years ago, some in the sea turtle world believed there were too few hawksbills left along the Pacific coast of the Americas to remain a viable population. But a small group of conservationists weren't so sure. Their search ended up finding a number of nesting and feeding areas along the Pacific coast of the Americas, including three major nesting areas in Nicaragua and El Salvador that were previously unknown to science, and launched an award-winning program that works closely with local communities to protect these turtles and their hatchlings and conducts groundbreaking research, giving hope for a recovery in this region. Now, local organizations protect 98% of the nests at the two biggest nesting areas, which in total average around 500 nests and 40,000 hatchlings per year. I'm not going to pretend to be impartial about this initiative. In 20 years of working with sea turtles, I think this is one of the most inspiring and encouraging stories of researchers working with communities to bring back a critically endangered species. I was really proud as chair of the awards committee of the International Sea Turtle Society to be able to give this initiative a Champions Award for their outstanding work a couple of years ago. And my organization, Sea Turtles, has been helping fund the two main nesting beaches since 2013 through our Billion Baby Turtles program. For this episode, we speak to several people who have worked as part of the Eastern Pacific Hawksbill Initiative, known by its Spanish acronym ICAPO, to learn about this inspiring story. ICAPO is a network spanning Mexico all the way to Peru and includes dozens of researchers, organizations, local communities, and others. You'll hear about this work from Alex Gauss and Ingrid Yanez, the co-founders of ICAPO. Alex now works with NOAA and is the scientific advisor to the program, while Ingrid works as the network administrator. We will also hear from Jose Orteaga, former head of the sea turtle program for Fauna and Flora International in Nicaragua, and also a current board member of sea turtles. Finally, we will hear from Mike Lyles, head of Procosta, a nonprofit working in El Salvador to save sea turtles. 
while the Akapo network spans this entire Pacific coast. For this episode, we will focus primarily on the nesting areas of Nicaragua and El Salvador. We start with the story of how this initiative came about, which is an extraordinary example of patience and perseverance, along with a lesson in listening to those who live closest to the turtles themselves. First, you'll hear Alex and Ingrid, followed by Mike, and ending with Jose. This is back between 2003 and 2007. We worked in Costa Rica, and we we were managing several projects along the Pacific coast. When we were there working on these olive projects, and we had one beach called Caletas where we had uh, leatherbacks nesting, and so we, you know, we wrote a couple grants and got some funding with the leatherback kind of being the the main species because it was like the species in the spotlight. It was the one getting garnering all the attention. And so we took advantage of that to also get some funding to protect this beach. And I just remember hawksbill turtles in the Eastern Pacific and not being able to find really any literature. And, and, and so I, you know, I was going, so how come I'm hearing and there's all this hurrah about leatherbacks and about attention and protecting them before they go extinct when hawksbills might be even in worse condition than leatherbacks. As far as the literature goes, that seems like it might be the case because everything I could find would say that they had been extirpated in the region or that they were, you know, functionally extirpated. So there, there was no nesting really left except for sporadic here and there, occasional nesting. You know, I was really surprised by this fact that there, there was nothing on the species, but no one was talking about it either. Meanwhile, all this attention was being played to leatherbacks. At that time, like, the all um, information that was available for Hoxie was linked to the Caribbean. Nobody thought about having Hoxvilles in the Eastern Pacific. So it was something very rare to see. And when we look through the records, there was just as one here, one there, like very sporadically records. So it was something that was stuck in our head and say, why, why is this happening? And I lived down in Baja as a kid, and I was really eager to like get back to those roots, you know, and like go. And Baja is amazing, and you go spear fishing, and you do all this stuff, and you live in the middle of nowhere. And so I said to Ingrid, like, man, what if we like went up and we started looking for hawksbills and just start going with the fishermen? And you know, they say there aren't a lot up there, but let's just let's leave, let's go do something else. And if you know, if after we do this concerted effort looking for them, we don't find anything, well, then we'll find our next adventure, you know, and no big deal. You know, Ingrid and I at that point had thought, like, let's get a pickup truck. Let's drive around the Baja Peninsula and talk with fishermen, camp, spearfish, have a good time and see what they say about hawksbill turtles. And so, I mean, that's really how how we started looking for them. So I, I would say that it was curiosity if there are still hawksbills in the Pacific or if they are completely extinct. We just have to go and find out what is happening and the only way is that we go beach by beach uh, fisher camp by fisher camp and ask and cover the whole coast yeah so we we grab a map and say okay we are going to go and try to cover and talk with the coastal people so we went baja california sur baja california norte around the top past san felipe into like sonora then we took a ferry back across to loreto we showed up at the meeting in Loreto, at the International Sea Turtle Symposium in Loreto. We gave a presentation on what our plan was to start kind of acting as the hub for hawksbill information in the Eastern Pacific, and then showing kind of 
what we had found in our first three months and that we were going to go back in another couple of months and actually start to try to catch turtles. So it was still kind of in its infancy. We didn't really know what we were going to find. And so we invited a bunch of the people we worked with in different countries to participate in this. Hey, like we're doing this thing. We're trying to get information on hawksbills. Guys come where we'll invite everyone to breakfast. You guys show up and we'll talk about this initiative that we're trying to create. So it was in 2007, a colleague and I were conducting a nationwide sea turtle nesting beach survey that we went up and down the Salvadoran coast. It's about 300 kilometers. And if you think about Salvador, it's, it's a small country. It's about the size, if we relate it to something in the United States, the size of Massachusetts. Over the course of one year, we visited over 60 beaches every two weeks to document information about sea turtle nesting activity. Towards the end of 2007, when we these surveys were indicating that there were hawksbill turtles nesting at well, specifically three locations. And a third one, which was really the most interesting one and ended up being the game changer for the species and, and conservation activities in general, the third site was a mangrove estuary complex called Hikilisco Bay. The local egg collectors that we were speaking with in Higilisco Bay were saying that these hawksbill turtles came up and nested on beaches inside the estuaries. At the time, we weren't necessarily aware of the significance, my colleague and I, of it, but we wanted to promote that this study had been done, the survey, and we went to uh, the Sea Turtle Symposium. And then that's when we met up with a bunch of other colleagues that we ended up together forming this diverse network of people, experts, uh, you could say, along the entire Eastern Pacific region called ICAPO. We were helping the Environmental Ministry to put together a national report in nesting area, and that work required for us to connect with different projects that they were working in nesting areas. And I clearly remember receiving a report of people that was working in Chinandega, in the Pacific North of Nicaragua, reporting a suspiciously high number of hawksbills nests. And when I say suspiciously, maybe between 10 and 20, which was considered by that time super high. And just to, to admit my guilty and others that were working with us, by that time, we assumed that those records were like probably mistaken records that probably people were identifying the other species of sea turtles, maybe young or smaller Ollie Ridley's or, or maybe black turtles as hawksbill. So we were very skeptic about those reports of hawksbills, but they were consistent. I think it was 2007, 2008 in the Baja California Sea Turtle Symposium, they organized a meeting. Uh, Mike Liles from El Salvador was presenting results that they were showing the outstanding numbers that they were finding in, in Bahia Hikilisco. Kind of, they were putting in perspective, like, okay, 80 nests, 90 nests, that's a lot of Hawksville uh, in the whole picture by that time. And so in that moment, we started to think, okay, maybe those original reports back in the time that we received when we were doing that report for the ministry in Nicaragua, maybe those numbers were not misidentified turtles. Maybe those really were like Hawksville. And that's when we started taking those reports more seriously. 
So by 2009, Alex Gauss came to Nicaragua and we organized it again, uh, like a workshop with people from all along the, the Pacific coast of Nicaragua were presenting results. And there was this group from a community that was invited. They didn't present, but after the meeting, they approached Alex and they approached me and the name of the guy was Eddie Maradiaga. They were involved in a fishing cooperative. They say, hey, look, there are hawksbills still in an area, which is the Padre Ramos Natural Reserve. And, and there are a lot of hawksbills for the numbers you are mentioning. So that was in 2009. And I will say, like, from that point is when we decided to, like, invest more energies and time into going to the place and assessing the situation and doing our due diligence of walking the beach and checking for nesting tracks. In 2010 is when we really started a nesting monitoring project and, and the rest is the history of ICAPO in Nicaragua. I think one of the most inspiring parts of this story is how this initiative worked closely with residents of the turtle nesting areas from the start, which hasn't always been the case in the sea turtle conservation world. By working to build trust with these communities, understanding their needs, and creating a system that benefits both people and turtles, this initiative has had extraordinary local participation while giving hope for a recovery. To talk about how these projects work with residents, you'll hear first from Jose, followed by Mike, and then Ingrid. From the very beginning, the, the philosophy of work with Fauna and Flora International uh, work philosophy to work with local communities as much as possible to empower local communities to be the champions and the key stakeholders of CTO conservation. So that involves not just doing the typical work that we do in nesting areas, like doing the monitoring and doing the, all the scientific work and the protection work, but it's a lot of capacity building and engaging of communities. One of the events that really sparked the initiation of the project in Nicaragua was people of the community coming to us and telling us, hey, you are interested in Hawksfield? There are Hawksfields in, in our place. Come. So somehow we were invited by this fishing cooperative. And from them there, we started to facilitate a process uh, of developing a project that involved the participation of the rest of the community. So our partner in the community was this fishing cooperative, but in parallel with them, we organized a committee that will involve like key stakeholders within the community and other NGOs that were already working in that area, in which most of the decision-making of the process was taking place. The community was involved in the development of the project from the very beginning, and it happened organically. With Hikalisco Bay, it was interesting because a lot of our efforts really grew organically out of the, the beach survey that we had conducted from 2007 to 2008. Our local contact ended up being one of the most important members of our team. His name is Neftali Sanchez, and he is a local fisher, uh, a community leader from the largest town in Hikilisco Bay. He was from the very beginning very conservation-minded and passionate about protecting natural resources in the area. It was a perfect fit, really, that I would end up forming a close relationship with him, and he was definitely interested in learning more about these turtles. And so that helped facilitate meetings with other community leaders from other towns throughout Hikilisco Bay, places that we thought that there would be nesting activity for hawksbills. And so we were able to 
meet with these leaders and then these leaders in turn would organize meetings with the egg collectors. We call them caralleros, the local egg collectors, the ones that collect hawksbill eggs and bring them for conservation. And so these caralleros, we would meet with them in the different communities and really pitch our case for why this is important and why they really hold the fate of the species in the region in their hands and, and try to generate and empower pride among them. And so in the beginning, I still remember them being very interested and intrigued, and but at the same time, very cautious. I had been in El Salvador for maybe a year from that point. And so, you know, being kind of a gringo, uh, an outsider, having Neftali there was definitely a huge help because they trusted him. So in turn, they kind of extended some trust to me. But at the same time, the trust needed to be built and strengthened. And so what I ended up doing is I stayed with Neftali for the first two years, really almost through the entire nesting season. And we would spend nights at the hatcheries, we would do the beach walks, we would go up and down and really get to know a lot of the different caralleros. And that went so far into developing relationships that showed that we weren't there to bring any negative consequences, but rather we were there to try to build a system that also recognizes their needs as they relate to hawksbills. A few years ago, we started something in between, like a competition between El Salvador and Nicaragua that we call the Huxville Cup, the Copacare, where we can um, make a, like a competition between like which country or, or which beach has more nests or more protected nests, more hatchlings, more eggs, more participation of the community. And one of the the phrases that we always say is, "We are one team." We are in different countries. We belong to different organizations. Uh, but we are one team. So the Hawksville initiative, the Hawksville movement is one team. So we all go for the for the same goal. So with this competition, in the beginning, we didn't know uh, how many nests or how many hatchlings we, we will release in every nesting season. So this competition was a, a way to engage the community, to show them that if they protect the nest, they can see the product right there when they release the hatchlings. Many coastal people, they know that they have turtles in the backyard, right? But they usually, they don't see them. They don't see that the egg and the hatchlings, they they know that they are there, but they sometimes they don't know or they, they haven't witnessed all the cycle and they haven't that experience right there. So with, with this Huxley Cup, we engage them to see how many nests are, are deposited in the beaches every nesting season and compare with the other country, with the other beaches, and see how are they in numbers for everything, also for participation from the community members. It was a, a good thing to engage them, and the numbers are very, very similar. In some years, like, they were like toe by toe, but at the end, doesn't matter if this country has 10 more nests or 100 more hatchlings or whatever. The thing is that, that we are promoting and, and we know what is happening at the beaches and they see that other community members are part of the recovery of the species. So it's a community effort what is happening right now with the species. Now it's in the spotlight. Everybody knows the, the situation now everybody knows that they are present in the Eastern Pacific. This is because everybody's collaborating for this success. 
One way that these projects benefit local communities is by paying local egg collectors to find the nests around these two estuaries and bring them to a hatchery to be protected. You'll hear from Mike and then Jose about how this incentive program was set up and how it has worked. Right around the time that we had been discovering these different nesting colonies of hawksbills in El Salvador is the Salvadoran government in 2009, they had declared a moratorium on the sale of hawksbill products, a, a complete ban on the consumption of sea turtle eggs or taking parts of hawksbill shells to make jewelry, for example. And it was an interesting moment for conservation in El Salvador because this ban really demonstrated in many ways the disconnect that can exist between, for example, the Salvadoran government in this case and the local communities where it was really from one day to the next, Carrieros or other sea turtle egg collectors, you know, in January of 2009, they were able to legally collect and sell turtle eggs on the market for people to eat legally. And then the following month in February, from one day to the next, all of a sudden completely illegal it, without any communication with local community members. And so that in itself generated a lot of conflict, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress, and really a lot of the blame for this shifted to the organizations, including uh, our organization, for having facilitated uh, something that the local communities viewed as almost an attack on their livelihoods. The primary push for the, the ban was it prohibited the sale of sea turtle eggs on the market, but it allowed for the sale of sea turtle eggs to hatcheries or conservation programs for protection. So once some of these details were clearer to the people who actually live with the turtles, the carayeros were able to still be able to provide for their families in traditional ways, but instead of selling eggs to the market, they were able to sell them for conservation. And that gave our work the legal backing that helps as well of being able to make it a little bit more urgent for locals to decide to protect versus sell eggs on the market for consumption. And these are people who are often, and for sure in the case of El Salvador, have faced historic marginalization and this disenfranchisement that has been systemic throughout history here. Generally, you can try to compete with impoverished local residents for resources or collaborate with them for protection. So you need to choose which strategy, and a lot of that will underlie your philosophy towards conservation, but at the same time can really affect your long-term success. And so what does it mean to compete with residents? Many places can pay police or at least have support from police to protect resources through law enforcement. What can happen is this ignores the local realities, the needs that people have with these species. And a lot of times it can pit conservationists against local communities, which generates conflict and can in the long term, reduce the effectiveness of any conservation outcomes. Now, the other option is collaborating. Instead of paying police to protect resources, you can pay local resource users to protect the resources. Now, this is a different side of the coin, and you're recognizing the local realities, the human needs that people have, even though these species are endangered. It gives a voice to and empowers the people living with the hawksbill turtles. It helps you create a team that can share ownership of these conservation results. And ultimately, this can lead to longer term sustained outcomes that doesn't depend on law enforcement or political will that can break at any time. Together with the 
Caballeros, we developed an economic incentive program to protect hawksbill eggs, hatchlings, and to help identify the nesting females to be able to monitor these individuals over time. Now, it's really the Caballeros who do the vast majority of the work. They walk the beaches night after night in search of nesting hawksbills and nests. We have local field staff who are comprised of people who live in the community. They're trained, but they're the, your hatchery managers or the people that help patrol beaches. And so if a local community member, a caballero, finds a hawksbill or a hawksbill nest, they will call us and then our local team immediately travels by boat to where the caballero and the turtle or the nest are. And so if the turtle is still nesting, the caballero will receive an economic incentive for helping to identify the turtle. Then there's a second incentive for the eggs that are collected and that our local team can bring to the hatchery for protection. There's a third incentive that recognizes that it, the number of baby turtles that hatch is important as well. So there's kind of a three-tiered incentive program, which has been wildly successful and has in many ways completely flipped the script on the fate of hawksbills in El Salvador, but also in the entire region. Because prior to 2007, in the case of El Salvador, 0% of hawksbill eggs were protected. And now we're at nearly 100% protection rate and almost complete engagement and involvement of the Carilleros, for a long time, the unsung heroes, and now they're really being recognized as the ones who are the motor that drives conservation activities and successes in Higilisco Bay. What we found is studying the legal market and the incentive programs is that people were engaging in conservation, even when the illegal market prices were up to 50% larger than the prices that the conservation programs were offering. So that was intriguing, and we went to interview the collectors and try to understand why they were doing that and why they were committing to conservation, even when the legal market offered higher prices. And obviously, one of the first questions you may ask is, oh, well, probably they were scarce of enforcement. But in places like in Nicaragua, enforcement of uh, sea conservation regulation is non-existent, and egg collectors can collect the eggs pretty much openly. We can see this because in the same areas where the hawksbill are nesting, are uh, only Ridley turtles are also nesting. These turtles do not receive the same like level of attention and protection of the turtles. So the, these same collectors that are helping the the hawksbill conservation project sometimes are collecting the the only Ridley nests at the same time and selling them to the illegal market. So the second question was. There are some other factors that are more not the class, within the classic economic realm, but more like moral factors. And effectively, what, what we learn is that there are two major factors that, that are uh, inspiring egg collectors to help the conservation projects. And one is they are developing a conservation ethic. You hear a lot of people in, in the community and egg collector explaining that they prefer conservation projects because it is a good way to protect the nesting population. They understand that it's an endangered species and that some action is required to increase the population. And they see these turtles uh, as a very important assets that make feel them proud. And that is very important for them. The other big important factor, and it's related to the relationship that the, the people that is working in the project establish with the community. So the, the conservation projects are doing other activities, are doing the Hawksville Cup. They have been able to develop a strong uh, relationship with the community. They have been able to build trust. And this is something that local communities 
value a lot. You know, they commit to the war. They feel like conserving the turtles goes beyond transactional relationship, but it's more like a partner relationship, right? Uh, that means also to respect the other side and to commit to certain agreements that you have established previously with these people. So uh, this is up to say that you can use economic incentive and at the same time you can develop this conservation ethic within the community. In addition to protecting nests and working with communities, this initiative has had some groundbreaking scientific discoveries about these turtles. Here are Alex and Mike talking about what they have learned and what they are currently studying. I think first and foremost, it was, you know, the, the novel discovery that, you know, hawksbills were nesting in these mangrove estuaries, and that was really catalyzed by Mike's research. We put satellite tags on these uh, on these hawksbills, and what we found out is that two really important things. One is that not only are they nesting in those estuaries, but they were actually just lit. So a lot of the turtles were just migrating into the estuaries when they were done. So either estuaries near their nesting beaches or estuaries like down in Honduras and areas like that. So the fact that hawksbills, especially adult hawksbills, were both nesting and, and living and residing in these mangrove estuaries was really this new life history paradigm for the species. You know, hawksbills for decades have been classified as these coral reef dwellers. And in the Eastern Pacific, that was not the case. They were using these estuaries. And the second thing is that sea turtles in many parts of the world, you know, they do these multinational migrations where they're crossing multinational boundaries and borders and thousands of kilometers migrations. And what we found is that hawksbills were either migrating really short distances or they weren't even migrating at all. So I think the longest migration we documented was 273 kilometers or something like that. But other ones were like literally the turtle was nesting on a beach in the estuary and then taking up a foraging ground 500 meters of that same nesting beach. We are trying to figure out where these small hawksbills go, what's famously known as the lost years. And this is something that if you listen to the previous uh, podcast, one of Archie Carr's hypotheses was that turtles almost disappear for the first you know, one to three years of their life. And very little is known about them. That's why it's called the lost years. And just the differences with the hawksbills that we've seen in the Eastern Pacific and some of the information that local fishers who fish inside Hikilisco Bay tell us that, well, we sometimes see small turtles, very small, even hatchlings inside the mangroves. We don't think they leave. Some fishers swear that they don't go out. They have their whole life cycle inside Hikilisco Bay. And since they were the ones that helped identify hawksbills nesting in mangroves, it's worthwhile paying attention. So we've uh, set up a tracking program where we use different types of telemetry to try to decipher and reveal what happens during these lost years. Kind of the first step was we used small, very small transmitters called acoustic transmitters with freshly hatched hawksbill hatchlings where we attached these transmitters and we followed the turtle inside the estuary to see what would happen during the first 12 hours. Interestingly, the majority of them during those 12 hours never left the estuary. Now there were some that did. And so that led us to, okay, well, some of them stayed inside the estuary. So if we can track them for longer, what can that tell us? So we did a second phase where we also with freshly hatched hatchlings, we attached a different type of transmitter called the radio transmitter. And this one 
you're able to monitor a turtle for a longer period of time. But what we found, kind of the nutshell, is that there are likely some hawksbills over the course of 30 days, we tracked them and we still found them at day 30 inside the estuary. So that at least gives rise to the possibility that some are staying. So the third phase that we initiated and have recently completed was a satellite tracking where we needed to have larger, slightly larger turtles. So we captive reared hatchling hawksbills for right around a year until they were about 25 centimeters. And we put a small trans satellite transmitter and we released them uh, off the coast of Hikilisco Bay to see what they would do. And it ended up uh, over 50% of them actually almost immediately returned to estuaries for what we would say recruited. They almost recruited directly to the estuaries, the mangroves in Hikilisco Bay. And then there are others that uh, one of them went to the estuary in an estuary in uh, Nicaragua and another one in Honduras. And so the estuary is a development ground for the entire life cycle of, of the Hawksbill. Thanks for listening to this episode. Our next episode will be about tigers, which is coming soon. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.